ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Good afternoon, Selena Green with you today. In a moment, a bit of a mixed bag for harvest across the state. So we'll find out what the latest forecast is for our crop production. And speaking of harvest, why it might be worthwhile setting aside a little bit of your best grain aside. Grand Champion Wheat, for example, takes out a prize of nearly $2,000. So it's significant sort of prizes that are, are up there for those who make the involvement and uh, display their produce. Find out how you can be a part of that shortly. My talkback number today, if you'd like to be part of the program, one three hundred triple two eight nine one, or the text line 0467 922 Well, first up today, how far are you into your harvest? If you're ahead of normal schedule, you're certainly not alone by the sounds of things. It has been an earlier start for many South Australian farmers which has given us a pretty good handle already on how the season is looking. And to discuss that, Minister for Primary Industries, Claire Scriven, joins me in the studio. Good afternoon. Good to be with you, Selena. So what have you seen uh, with the yields and uh, numbers coming in, given the early start? Is it all meeting expectations? Yeah, so the expectations are just slightly higher than was forecast a short time ago. Uh, so as you mentioned, many of our South Australian farmers are experiencing their earliest ever start to harvest. Um, with the early yields expecting to be around about average or just slightly above. So, of course, last year we had uh, a record mm. uh, record production, um, which was uh, $4.4 billion of value. But this year it's expected to be around about $3.6 billion. So still very good uh, and pretty much on ter- in uh, on the long-term average type of uh, production levels. Because as you say, yes, last year was a, was a record year. With what it is predicted to end up around this year, how does that sort of compare to the average? Yeah, so it's just slightly above. So that's a, a really quite a good outcome given the conditions that we've had and some of the expectations that perhaps were a bit lower. So, um, you know, and a, and a, about 9.2 tonnes is the expectation for crop production at the moment. Uh, and that's a little bit higher than uh, previous years, around about the same as 2021. Because mm. I think things started out well. Uh, is this sort of down, downward uh, grading, is, is that squarely on the lack of finishing rains? Uh, look, it, it, it is, particularly on the lack of finishing rains. Uh, and also, of course, the, the harvest has been so early, which is different to uh, mm. what uh, previous years would be. So uh, I think overall it's quite a good result and let's hope that things do continue. Um, a lot of people, of course, have already finished harvest in other parts of the state. We're still progressing down here in the southeast, uh, But uh, it is a good outcome given what perhaps some of the earlier expectations were. Yeah, for those who've wrapped up, it's probably a moot point. But for those who are still going, I mean, what, what is the prediction going forward for for weather and what that means for those who've still got harvest remaining. Yeah, so we know, of course, that there's the El Nino expectation. So that's uh, something that's on a lot of people's minds. And I think uh, there is, uh, in terms of livestock, certainly a lot of farmers are looking at decreasing their their sheep. 
Um, there's likely to be perhaps an increase in lentils uh, this year, which has been a bit of an ongoing trend. Uh, but the, the drier conditions, I think, are of a, a concern. Uh, but a lot of our producers are making the, the necessary changes to try to deal with that. Yeah. You, you are expecting, you are hearing that some producers are, are starting to make that shift into, into lentils or other crops out of livestock, given the poor prices they've been getting, particularly for sheep? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, what, uh, what have you been hearing about the quality and prices as well for harvest this year for grains? Yeah, so the quality has, um, has stayed up reasonably strongly. Uh, and so that's, uh, again, a, a good outcome given the, uh, you know, the, the dry conditions that we've had. Mm. And looking across the state, is it pretty much a, a similar story for all of the regions? I mean, are there some that have had uh, you know, a bit of a tougher time, especially with those um, missing rains than others? Uh, it's also the frosts that have been across a number of the areas. So um, that has you know, affected the, uh, you know, the Mid-North in particular, but a couple of other regions as well. Uh, so a, a bit of a mixed bag, I think you said in your introduction. Uh, some of those producers that have had the frosts in particular will have uh, you know, lower expectations than they would have liked, um, whereas others haven't been affected by that. Of course, it is hard to have a crystal ball and, and know what is exactly is going to happen in the future. Even uh, It's come out pretty average this year, despite uh, things drying out. Going into the El Nino conditions, what about the following year? Is this potentially then going to have some you know, knock-on effects for, for crop production in the, the following year? Yeah, look, that, that's quite likely. I mean, some of the stored soil moisture has sort of seen the producers through this this season uh, and resulted in some quite good outcomes. Uh, but, of course, that will decrease if we do have the El Nino that we're expecting. Well, we'll wait and see what, what that brings. I've got uh, Claire Scriven, who's the Minister for Primary Industries, in the studio with me this afternoon. While we have you, uh, late last week you did launch a, a 10-year feral deer eradication plan. Uh, one of the aims of that plan was to, to wipe the species here out in South Australia in, sometime in the next decade. And uh, we heard from the Invasive Species Council they've certainly welcomed that plan uh, and South Australia taking a bit of a lead on that. There was a question about the, the level of funding to achieve this uh, as way below what landscape boards need to implement it successfully. Is there the amount of funding that is needed to make this an achievable goal? So at the moment we've got a four-year funding. So we've reduced the number of feral deer from about 40,000 at the beginning of the program in May of 2022. They've been reduced by about 11,000 and 7,000 of that's been in the limestone coast. So a, a big a big outcome in a positive way there. And uh, there's both Commonwealth and state funding, but also funding through the landscape boards, through Livestock SA uh, in the current funding, uh, and landholders themselves. So it's quite usual to have you know a four-year funding, and then we'll be looking at that. Uh, and I think the really, really positive outcomes that we've seen bode well for uh, increasing funding going forward or getting continuation of funding, because I think it's worth remembering that this is not just about... Um, Agriculture, although the losses to agriculture are huge from feral deer, but it's also about environmental outcomes and also road safety. So uh, the estimate is that there'll be a net benefit of about $525 million over 10 years, which is the the period of the strategic plan. And so that's a really good outcome. And uh, I look forward to being able to give more feedback in regards to uh, the outcomes and therefore the funding going forward. Minister, thanks for joining us in the studio. My pleasure. Thank you. That is the Minister for Primary Industries, Claire Scriven, and that takes us to 12 minutes past 12. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill.
Well, tractors and protesters have taken to the streets of irrigation communities in southern New South Wales to show their opposition to the proposed water buybacks for the Murray-Darling Basin plan. The legislation before the Senate extends deadlines for the plan and will allow the government to purchase water from irrigators to meet the 450 gigalitre target for additional environment water. Organisers say a 1,000 people turned out in Griffith this week to protest the move, with 600 in both Leeton and Daniloquin. This report from Griffith begins as the tractors travelled down the main street. Glenn Andreazza, Griffith City Councillor, uh, irrigator, farmer and uh, also branch president of New South Wales uh, Griffith Local Branch. Previous waterbacks buybacks impacted myself and the local community very heavily. Uh, we feel we've only just recovered from the last 10 years of buybacks and now to potentially have another major buyback coming at us, it's going to be fairly devastating. People are just about over the fight. We've, we've, they've lost confidence. They've lost confidence in the government that they're going to do the right thing. They think they're just going to come along and take it without any consultation, without any, any remorse on what could be left behind or what could happen. So people are tired and people really don't, they're sick of fighting. This is about Griffith, this is about Daniloquin, this is about Leeton, this is about Collie Ambly, it's about businesses, it's about farmers. Ultimately, this is about Australia's food and fibre security. My name's John Bizzetto, I own a horticultural property 17 kilometres north of Griffith. It's all irrigated, I've been farming for 30 years. How, how are you feeling about the potential return of buybacks and how will it impact you and your, and your property? Monty, it's been really hard to stay calm because I have a sick, sickening feeling in my gut. That's how, because I've just, we've been through this for so long, so many times. You get a bit despondent thinking nobody's listening. That's the problem. Water is life. We're stuck here with a land that'll have no water after. We can't grow a crop. We've got land that's worthless. It's, it's going to hurt everyone, not just the farmers. It's, it's a flow-on effect. Every single person, every shop in this town, everyone. Message to the city that our regions will not be destroyed. Simon Benetti, we just got through the last one with you know the downturn and, and forced water prices up. Um, just going to make it so difficult for farming. Uh, you know, force, all it does is force the price of temporary water up, forces the price of uh, permanent water up, and you take something out of the community, you take water out of anything. Um, it's going to have effect not only on the local farmers but the whole whole of Griffith really. If farmers are making less money, um, all the business in town, machinery dealers, uh, chemical fertiliser companies, uh, even as far as house pricing and that, all drops. Um, but then the bigger issue is, uh, you know, shutting the town down. You know, people leave. Um, schools start closing. Hospital closes. You know, I've got two young children. Um, one of them is very keen on farming. I, I want a future for him. Yeah, Jeremy Cass. And Jeremy, you're with the Riverina Wine Grape Growers? Yes, that's correct. I represent 270 odd wine grape growers, uh, independent wine grape growers in this region. And how is the potential return of buybacks going to impact those wine grape growers? It's a funny thing for us. It's a bit of a conundrum because we're getting in such a bad spot at the moment. I know a lot of my members would love to have a wider buyback so they can get out of the industry with dignity. But that being said, you know, I hark back to the words of John Oxley when he came through here uh, all those 200 odd years ago and said that it was a desolate place that wasn't suitable for civilised habitation. So, you know, that's, a, that's the difference of what water can make to this area. So, 
Um, yeah. And then if that option does come and all those wine grape growers decide to take those buybacks, what impact is that going to have on the industry? It's going to have a huge impact on the industry and on the region. You know, that, that's the flow on effect of that. People won't be able to buy that water back to grow grapes because of the price of it. So, um, yeah, it's going to put a squeeze on the industry and push people out of town. Wineries are going to be struggling to fill their tanks. You know, I listened to Tanya Plibersek saying that, you know, we've got voluntary sellers out there, and, and that is correct, but those voluntary sellers wouldn't be so voluntary if the price of the produce that they were producing was making money. And we'll keep the pressure on the government to change this bad policy. Thank you. And thanks to Emily Doak, Monty Jacker and Connor Burke for that report from the protest in Griffith this week. Now, if you are out harvesting some quality grain or cutting some fine-looking hay at the moment, maybe a good chance to set some aside because entries have opened this week for the Royal Adelaide Show's Grains and Fodder competition. And as Grains and Fodder Committee Chair Peter Smith explained to me, it is a bit earlier than usual. Just launching this week the new schedule, 2024 schedule for the Grains and Fodder competition at the Adelaide Show. And uh, normally we don't get this out until January, February, but we've moved it forward this year um, to make sure that we coincide well and truly with the harvest. And so we're looking forward to as many growers as possible to take a sample, good quality grain or good quality hay, and enter it into the Adelaide show for next year. Brilliant. So the decision to bring it forward and make it a little bit earlier, is this all about making it easier for growers to get their entries in, something they can do alongside with harvesting while they're out there collecting in the first place? Yeah. Listen, we know that it's a busy time, of course, during harvest, but... If growers get the chance when they've got uh, a, a really good quality paddock that they're uh, harvesting or they've got some good quality hay, put it to one side uh, now and uh, then it can be ready to, to enter into the show because we don't close entries until June, but if we leave it until January after harvest, of most of the good samples have probably been sold or just gets too hard for growers. So we're just asking to think about it now and to be part of the, the national competition that we run at the Adelaide Show. Just how big a sample do people need to submit? How much grain is, is sort of yeah. generally required? Um, for grains, it's, uh, it's three kilograms, about a, an ice cream, can, big, big ice cream container size. And that uh, gives us, Three kilos gives us plenty to do the, the testing, get it, get it then judged after the, the testing that we do and have a, a sample then available to display at the show. And if it's fodder, about 10 kilograms. So uh, they're the sort of volumes that, that we need to, um, to have for good judging and that enables us to make good comparisons and get uh, really good results out there for growers. You just give us an idea of the process. Sort of once a sample is submitted, what what happens with it from there? Well, basically, what we'd want is the the intention. There's two two parts. Of the process is the sample, of course, uh, and then go online to the Adelaide Show and make an entry. It costs ten dollars to to put an entry into the into the Adelaide Show. Do that online, and then if they've got those samples, they'll see online where they can make contact with a, a number of uh, collection depots that are scattered across the state. We've got about a dozen to make it a little bit easier so they don't have to bring them into Adelaide. 
or there's a contact number of our grains coordinator, Chelsea, who could arrange for samples to be delivered for the showing. Once they're, they're received, we take those samples, they get tested um, uh, for all of the grain or the high-quality attributes. That comes back, that's later in the year, usually about July. And then in August, our judges come in, look at the samples, take on board the results that uh, they've received from the quality testing, put it together to decide on the, um, the ultimate winners. And is it all varieties or breeds of wheat that you are accepting this year? Indeed, indeed. There's categories for hard, uh, for ASW, APW, soft, but of course it goes across each of the, the main grain types. It's um, your barley, your oats, it's your pulses and oil seeds, of course. And don't forget uh, the small seeds category is there as well. And um, this year, our feature will be for the pulses. So a bit of a special emphasis on in any of those grain lignin crops that uh, growers produce. That's, that will be our big feature uh, as part of both the display and the educational program that we run with the Golden Grains at Adelaide. So, Peter, is this all really about having some bragging rights or is this all, you know, some really valuable feedback for those who enter into these competitions? It's a little bit of both, Selena, mm-hmm. and I think the important thing is we're putting on display um, the best of the best of uh, grain, grain and hay, showing the public um, the produce that South Australia um, is growing and, of course, is using for our local food consumption and a big part of our export market. And although a lot of the results um, are not as significant to growers these days because they, they get their feedback in other, other ways as well, but it gives perhaps that chance to do a little bit of on-selling or perhaps a little bit of competition with their friends and neighbours. Uh, so as you say, it's launching this week, so people can start putting their uh, samples in and there's a few ways, as you say, that that can happen. Yes, indeed there are. Put a sample to one side when you've got a bit more time and go online again when, when, when the time's right. Enter your sample and we'll, we'll make sure that that sample's judged. And there's some terrific prizes. Our sponsorship is marvellous. Uh, sponsors are right on board with us. Grand Champion Week, for example, takes out a prize of nearly $2,000. So it's significant sort of prizes that are, are up there for those who make the involvement and uh, display their produce. Royal Adelaide Show Grains and Fodder Committee Chair Peter Smith. Well, before the weather, let's quickly find out what happened at the Mount Compass cattle market. Now for that, John Traeger, hello. Good afternoon. Quality was fair to good as agents offered 736 live-weight and open oxen cattle with the usual buyers providing solid competition. The sale totaled 337 steers, 262 heifers and 106 cows. Restockers were more active this week on lighter cattle to turn out, with some ideal lines of veal steers and heifers going to the paddock. Prices across most classes improved this week, with grown steers and heifers featuring in the price increases. Veal steers improved 5 to 10 cents as they sold from 189 to 259 cents, with veal heifers up by a similar amount as they sold from 133 to 203 cents. Yielding steers again 10 to 20 cents to sell from 155 to 225, as yielding heifers improved by 5 to 10 to sell from 150 to 211 cents. 
manufacturing steers sold from 205 to 220 cents, an increase of 20 cents a kilo, as grown steers and heifers lifted 5 to 20 cents, with steers ranging from 140 to 225 and heifers 170 to 213 cents. Cows also improved in price by 5 to 20 cents a kilo as light dairy cows sold from 131 with beef types to 137. Heavy dairy cows sold from 127 to 143 with beef cows selling from 137 to 213 cents a kilo. Light bulls sold from 135 to 140, with heavy bulls ranging from 150 to 210 cents, with both selling to a firm trend. This is John Traeger at the Southern Livestock Exchange at Mount Compass for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the Country Hour. Thanks, John. Now we're off to the Weather Bureau and Simon Timkey is our forecaster. Hello, Simon. G'day, Selena. Interesting couple of days ahead by the sounds of things. Yeah, there's certainly a bit of weather around the place, uh, uh, over the south of the state at least. If you can imagine an area of the state roughly southeast of, uh, um, uh, well, where would I pick? About Roxby Downs or thereabout, maybe Tarkoola, a little bit further west there. Then we've got mostly cloudy conditions over that section of the state. Elsewhere, clear skies apart from some cloud about far western coasts. But that cloud over the southeastern bit, uh, that I described it is producing some showers and some isolated thunderstorms. Uh, apart from sort of the southeast districts, I think it's going to take a little bit longer to get down there. Uh, but but yeah, there is a, a a little bit of weather around the place, and we have seen some uh, some some rainfall totals. Uh, looking at the, the rainfall totals up to 9 a.m. this morning, uh, Morgan picked up nearly 15 millimetres. Appla just over 12. Wallawi almost 12. So a few spots about the mid north and the Riverland areas picking up 10 to 15 millimetres and fairly widespread falls of, uh, of, of 4 or 5 to 10 over those uh, central and eastern parts uh, and I think that uh, weather will, will continue um, during the day looking at the rain, radar at the moment we're seeing areas of rain and some showers over that, that sort of southeastern part of the, uh, of the state. Uh, apart from, as I said, the lower southeast, and it will take a little while for the the weather to reach down there. So over um, today and tomorrow, fairly similar days, um, with the thunderstorm probably becoming a little bit more frequent each afternoon, and a chance of some severe thunderstorms around the place as well. Uh, I think for today, uh, if you can imagine a sector of the state sort of northeast of about the Barossa Valley, I think that area there would be. Um, where we would be a chance of seeing some severe thunderstorms later today with locally heavy rainfall and damaging wind gusts, the most likely uh, phenomena to look out for. Uh, and that area where severe thunderstorms as possible does slip further southwards tomorrow where um, mostly sort of central and eastern parts of the agricultural area um, will be a chance of seeing more frequent thunderstorms and potentially severe thunderstorms on Friday. So some wet weather uh, uh, about the place today and tomorrow. Uh, and the, the feature driving this weather is a, a low pressure trough currently over the eastern states and it moves westwards over eastern parts of South Australia later today and tomorrow. And then it moves eastwards again over the weekend. So we'll start to see that weather um, contract eastwards during Saturday. Uh, so thunderstorms still possible about eastern districts on Saturday. 
uh, and showers over uh, central and eastern districts. But we'll see uh, uh, the weather contract largely eastwards and southwards so that by Sunday, mostly the showers will be confined to the southern agricultural area and near western coasts. Uh, and then in the onshore sort of south to southeasterly airstream, we'll see the weather persist about the southern agricultural area into early next week. Still a chance of the odd shower or thunderstorm over the north as well through the early part of next week. Um, rainfall totals wise, it's the sort of wettest period we've seen for a little while. Uh, over the southeastern quarter of the state at least and expecting falls generally less than two millimetres about western coasts where the showers will be fairly light uh, but two to five millimetres about the, the far north with some showers there. Over that southeastern part, 5 to 15 millimetres, about central and eastern parts, and some localised falls of 15 to 30 millimetres. And we will see some locations pick up a little bit more than that, 30 to 60 millimetres possible, with some heavier showers and some thunderstorms. So mm. some good news for people looking out for rainfall, Selena, but not such good news for those harvesting, I suspect. Yes, no, I imagine not, yes. Uh, all right, well, we'll be very interested to see what totals do come out of this. Thank you, Simon. Thanks, Selena. Simon Timkey there from the Weather Bureau. Looking at the western inland of New South Wales for the upper western tomorrow, partly cloudy with a high chance of showers in the east, medium chance elsewhere and the chance of a thunderstorm. For the lower western district, cloudy with a high chance of showers. They're most likely in the morning but also into the afternoon. There's a chance of a thunderstorm there as well with some heavy falls possible in the west. Uh, those districts are looking at overnight temperatures between 15 and 20 degrees with daytime temps in the mid-20s to low 30s. It's just coming on half past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Good afternoon. What's that time of the year? Looking at the calendar, have you already started your Christmas menu planning? Does it include lobster? And just how much could you be paying? for them this year. Find out in a moment. And speaking of traditional Christmas fare, will there be enough cherries to go around this year and what will prices for those be like? Yeah, I've seen some seen some grapefruit in uh, in supermarkets already. Uh, seen some grapefruit coming out of the South Australian Riverland, so things are looking pretty good. Some good news to deliver on that front in this next half an hour as well. But first, Matt Coleman will update you on the top news stories for the day. Hi, Matt. Hello, Selena. In the news this afternoon, a senior Israeli official says hostages being held in Gaza won't be freed before Friday. Israel and Hamas had reached a deal to exchange 50 of the hostages for a four-day pause in fighting, but Israeli National Security Advisor Saki Hanegbi says it now won't take effect before Friday local time, a day later than originally expected. Additional support services will be available for those sleeping rough in the Adelaide metropolitan area and parts of regional South Australia due to heavy rain and storms. A code blue will be activated in Adelaide until Saturday morning and other parts of the state until Sunday morning. The Human Services Minister Nat Cook says the response will provide anyone who's homeless with extra shelter options and food services to help them escape the weather. 
And the Industrial Relations Minister says the government will throw its support behind a national ban of all engineered stone products. State and Territory Work, Health and Safety Ministers will meet next month to consider national action on engineered stone. The Minister, Kaya Ma, says if a ban is not introduced, South Australia will take steps to do so on its own. More news at one o'clock. Thank you, Matt. Matt Coleman with those headlines. Well, how much could you be paying this year if you're after a Christmas lobster? Well, likely more than last year, according to those in the industry. Now, while tariffs on rock lobster by the Chinese government are still in place for now, prices have increased modestly as other markets have stabilised. Andrew Ferguson, the Managing Director with South Australian exporter and retailer Ferguson Australia, well, he says quality has been particularly good this year. I'm sort of seeing prices a little bit better than last year, a bit higher, unfortunately, for the consumer. It's just because the beach price has been higher and fishermen have caught pretty well. They've caught, you know, probably 50% of their quota. Some some are finished, actually. So, yeah, they're a bit choosy about when they go fishing. If the price drops you know, below a certain amount, they, they stop fishing and, you know, it just causes the, the, the price to go up a bit. I mean, this is this is without China, of course. As uh, you just mentioned, the industry is hopeful that China will be coming back on board before Christmas. Uh, if that was to happen, how immediate would there be a change in prices? Oh, it's a good question. I, yeah, look, it's, it's sort of, I've, got, well, I've just been to China a couple of times lately and, and I just don't see China the place it was three or four or five years ago. So some areas are struggling a bit and Maybe, you know, it mightn't have a, a huge effect. I know there's a lot of other product going into China that's never there before to, to replace our product. So, you know, we've got to sort of find, a, find ourselves when we go back there. So it might not be quite as good as we were expecting. And, you know, it might not, you know, have the price jump that we do expect. So, you know, that, that could happen. But then we've got Chinese New Year fairly smartly into middle of February. So I'm expecting, you know, they're talking it up this year for Chinese New Year. So that, that, that'll certainly help demand and push the price. But, Obviously, that's well past Christmas. Yes, so it would have an impact on price, but you think maybe not as big a one as it has been previously. It might still be affordable for some Australian households. Yeah, I think so. I don't think we'll see the the price hike immediately that we would expect uh, because we'll have to find our way again. And, you know, like we've had to find our way over the last three years from where we started, we just had to negotiate into other markets and sort of slowly found other other avenues. So, you know, to sort of to turn things all around again, you know, it doesn't always, in my experience, doesn't happen as quick as you expect. And you've found the domestic market has been quite happy they've been able to have better access to lobster in the last couple of years. It's been a silver lining for them. Yeah, definitely. I think, yes, no, I definitely say that. I've certainly fed a lot more product into the local market uh, than, than we ever had previously three years before that. So, Yes, domestic market's been fairly important. We, you know, as I speak today, we're, you know, we're cooking today for the domestic market with orders and things. But, you know, but, but like I said before, the price started just, just that little bit higher than what they were, say, this time last year. And you'd expect quality to be just as good for those looking for a Christmas lobster this year as other years? Definitely. The quality is actually very good at the moment. But just, just not the large lobsters in the catch yet. But, but the, unfortunately, the, the larger lobsters are dormant there in hibernation, molting. We don't see those sort of come back into the catch in any volume until getting very close to Christmas. It's always the same every year. But the fish, the, the medium-sized fish that we're cooking today, I was just looking at them only a moment ago, and, wow, they're really good. They're really full of meat, good good, good product at the moment. And some of those other markets you mentioned, Andrew, where else have you been sending your lobster in the last couple of years? 
Yeah, we, we, we've diversified into away from a lot of you know a lot of live market, but more into the frozen. We do a lot in the supermarkets and the foodlands and, and, and independents uh, with the uh, half lobsters. That's going quite well. And the restaurants and uh, you know all over the place with our split lobsters, you know, vacuum pack, which is unique to that product. Uh, yeah, no, we, we've we've sort of found our way into some good markets actually, discerning markets. I'm talking about that want good quality. Even China's taking our frozen product in the you know, top end. We're not sort of aiming at the bottom end, but it's uh, it's not replacing live, but it's it's certainly helping. So people are becoming more accustomed or happy to try frozen lobster. What do you think the change has been there? I think our packaging. We cook and freeze a lot of fish that um, quickly freeze it, and you know because it's vacuum packed or near vacuum packed, the whole cooked lobster really helps the, the quality. So when Someone opens and pours out a, a frozen cooked lobster. It's just the, it's just as good as a freshly cooked lobster. And sort of we've done a bit of work in the you know, technology to get that, and so that we, it just makes it more convenient. It was always a bottleneck of cooking up into up to Christmas, and some of the quality wasn't as good right close to Christmas. Whereas this time of the year, cooking right you know, up to about the middle of December, a, 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 you tend to get a better class of fish. Some are, some are going into malt. That's, that's what we, you know you can't avoid when you're cooking very close to Christmas, and you know the drop tails and, and you know the quality's not there. But Christmas does not not, not the right time for the biological side of lobster. That's the managing director of Ferguson Australia, Andrew Ferguson, and he was speaking there to Elsie Adamo. Well, let's stick with. Foods that you like to eat around this time of the year and Christmas and cherries. Uh, the cherry prices were more expensive last Christmas, you may remember. There was tougher weather conditions leading to less fruit. So what about this year? Will there be enough cherries to go around and what will those prices be like? Conditions are looking good. We're hearing lots of high-quality cherries already being sold in supermarkets. And acting president of Cherry Growers of Australia and South Australian cherry grower Nick Noski says the industry has bounced back after that tough year. That won't necessarily mean better prices for consumers. Looking good. Sort of almost been a perfect growing season so far. Very little rain. Fruit quality looks really good. Crops are reasonable. Stronger than last year? Uh, let's not talk about last year. No, last year was a tough year. Yeah. Yeah, yeah crops are very light, a lot of weather damage. So, um, yeah, this is a, this is probably the other end of the spectrum. And are you hearing other positive things from other cherry farmers in South Australia and also across Australia? Yes, I am. I think it seems to be a pretty similar situation across the board. Yeah, I've seen some, seen some great fruit in, uh, in supermarkets already. Uh, seen some great fruit coming out of the South Australian Riverland, so things are looking pretty good. So better season this year, does that mean cherry prices might be a little bit more reasonable than last year? Not sure. Reasonable depends on, on whether you're buying or selling. You know, costs have gone up a lot for growers and they, and they do need to get a reasonable return. Having said that, you know, we would much rather see a good season where, you know, growers can produce fruit economically and consumers get good value for money. So that's that's really what we want to see as growers. Yes, absolutely. So even though there is more fruit than last year, for your average consumer, they might not notice much difference in the price. Is that right? Yeah, costs have gone up a lot. And Chile, uh, who is our biggest competitor in the overseas market, is having a pretty tough season from a weather perspective. So Strong export demand might might hold the domestic price up a little bit. But there'll be plenty of fruit around, you suspect, for those that want cherries at Christmas this year? Yeah, at this stage, there you know, look, there generally is plenty. It's just a matter of what they cost. But yeah, you know, this year, I, I think there's going to be a 
then, you know, there's going to be enough that consumers are going to get good value for money and some really good fruit by the look of things. So just, I know it's hard, we're all trying to read the future here, but if you could hazard a guess, more expensive or less expensive than last Christmas? I, th- I think a little bit less, uh, a little bit less, better fruit, but I, I, I don't expect cheap. Like you said, coming off a tough year, uh, do you think the industry is still pretty optimistic at the moment that there's some good returns and good work to be done with cherries? Yeah, look, we're cherry growers. We have to be optimists, otherwise we wouldn't be in the industry. But yeah, there is a there is a lot of optimism out there. There's good export demand and and quality's good. So uh, where are most of the cherries that are getting exported going? They will be going to you know Vietnam, Hong Kong, China. They're probably they're probably our biggest destinations at the moment. There's a there's a few consignments have already gone into Korea. Probably this early, it's largely Vietnam and China mm. and Hong Kong. Um, and, and Singapore. As Acting President of Cherry Growers of Australia, Nick Noski, they're speaking with Elsie Adamo. 20 minutes to one. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, after a bumper harvest at Kalara Station, which is in the far northwest of New South Wales, Justin and Julie McClure, McClure are packing away the headers and carting the remaining grain off their property ready for the next season. But it has not been your typical harvest. The McClures have lake bed and floodplain crops, as Lily McClure explains. Justin and Julie McClure's property is approximately 100,000 hectares and 300 kilometres northeast of Broken Hill. It sits on the Darling River, which presents as an ample asset for the McClures, particularly when it breaks its banks. What is typically a dry and often barren landscape, the flooding event of January 2023 allowed the McClures to plant one of their biggest crops yet, as Julie explains. The Darling, when she floods, she she really has a a vast area that she covers and um, that gives us opportunity to to crop on the lake beds and to crop on the floodplain. The lake beds, you're pretty much guaranteed a crop. Um, on the floodplain, not so much, but uh, a little bit of in, in uh, crop rainfall will always help. But, uh, yeah, get great, great opportunity for us. The McClure's floodplain harvesting is a practice steeped in family history. Julie says that through the resilience and adaptable nature of the people out in the far west, rare opportunities that present themselves can be utilised. People out west are pretty innovative. You know, they might see an opportunity and whether that's because of a stressful situation or whether it's just um, just a, a, a good thing. Um, Justin's family, uncle and father, cropped along the Darling um, after the floods in the 70s and, and probably prior to that, but really um, the floodplain, um, they were cropping on the floodplain sort of more so in the 70s and um, grew seals and um, sunflowers and safflower and linseed and lots of things. So, yeah, it's been in the family for a couple of generations now, three, three generations now. The location of the property has been able to present many opportunities that allow for diversification of the McClure's enterprise and to explore other avenues of agriculture. Tilpa's um, a little bit of a delta, I guess, as far as uh, the Paru and the um, and the Darling sort of uh, they converge at the sort of uh, out to the west of Tilpa, and um, of course that uh, is an ideal place after after a flood event. Uh, so not many people have 
that type of um, country and so not many people crop. The, the rainfall is probably the most significant factor as to why people just would not choose to do that. Look, diversification in the West is probably the key. Um, you know, people say water and wire, but um, diversification, taking some market opportunities and, and those opportunities have been um, taken up by us in the organic um, grain market. So, uh, it's, it, look, it's just been unbelievable, the, the opportunities that um, the diverse nature of, of where we live presents us with some magnificent opportunities. Kalara was one of the first pastoral runs opened up in Western New South Wales. Um, it sort of settled in in the 1850s. So Momba was a was a big guy. He was two million acres, and uh, Dunlop next door is a million acres, and Kalara is approximately a million acres. So traditionally a wool growing area, probably not cattle country by choice, but uh, given the opportunities with the flooding, it's. Uh, Really, um, we've uh, been able to use that event to, uh, to, to jump into some cattle as well. While the Darling River does create the opportunity to sow larger-scale crops after a flooding event, acquiring more equipment on property has allowed the McClure's to continue harvesting crops on a smaller scale outside of the flooding events. We invested in some irrigation infrastructure, which is sort of uh, we will crop year on year, um, using uh, a fifth, an area that's, uh, that we've sort of designated as our cropping area. Um, so we may choose to crop year on year, uh, depending on the, um, the availability of water in the Darling. We haven't extracted water out of the Darling for a good couple of years, but uh, there's uh, been a good couple of floods as well in that time. So yes, but copying to the scale that um, we've had this year is, is not a usual event. The Darling used to flood on average once every six years, uh, but it hasn't. Um, as with averages, it's not really. After the Darling River floods, it's an important art monitoring the ground moisture as the water recedes. Knowing where and when to plant the crops, as well as what sort of crops to sow, is all a part of the process once the river aggresses. When um, you, you might have an area of sort of three or four thousand acres, and, and as the flood recedes, uh, that country becomes available to, uh, to to plant. So depending on the time of the year that it um, that the flood recedes, um, as to whether you might choose to put an oil crop in, oil seed crop in, like like canola or, or just your traditional cereals like oats. The organic market is um, has there's a demand for organic oats, and um, so we sort of choose to do that. Sometimes we might seal country, work country, seal it over, and uh, and leave it for a more uh, correct window to uh, to plant. Um, plant the cereal crops but um, yeah we've grown all sorts of things over the time and it's um, more about timing, soil temperature, you know, soil moisture. Julia McClure from Kalara Station. Oh uh, yeah, radio, yeah. We'll just go for up the top of the dam and then I'll see you where you are. Where are you just filling into the field bin are you? Yeah over to the pivot, I'll, I'll be over there in a minute, I'm almost still. While the location of the McClure's property has been a key part of the successful diversification of their business, it hasn't been without its challenges. Being in such an isolated part of New South Wales means that it's important to be resourceful and utilise the expertise of those around. 
Family friend of the McClure's, Tom Lansom, travels from his home in South Australia's Barossa Valley to help with the harvest at Kalara. He has worked two of the McClure's harvests before, but says this one has been different. The quantity of grain, the amount of resources we've needed to actually get it off, get it away, get it sold. A bit of adventing as we're going, but that's what you do out here. Yeah. How significant is it to see crops in this area? Uh, it's pretty good. It's because obviously you don't get it, it's not a year and a year. There's a bit of a run at the moment, uh, but that's unusual. But it's good, very good, and it's exciting. It's good to be part of it, but it's, it's good to see it go and then finish, you know, and we can make it a complete cycle, which mm. is good. Well, I guess, what were your expectations coming out here before the harvest? Very little because you just don't know. Uh, and that probably makes it easier if, to change to suit. You know, what's discussed today and then tonight and then tomorrow morning is different what happens by lunch because communications is a problem. Uh, phones and you send a text message, you'll get back to the service and you'll get 20 text messages. That is a problem, but out here it's not going to change. Can you just explain a little bit how floodplain cropping works? When the water's up, it's up and fills the profile and then basically you juggle as to when you can get on it without getting stuck in it and then you know a bit of follow-up rain to join the top profile of the moisture and you're into it and that's it and it'll go it um it's good ground it mm -hmm. holds its moisture it's still damp spots now where the trucks have been driving you'll see damp spots and that's basically it but the floodplain you know if you try and understand where the water does go and where it has gone in the past you it takes years uh justin's very good at it he knows but that's a lot of history, family history, and ultimately I learn from him by saying, well, this is where it goes, and, and then when it's gone, you can see where the high tide mark was and you just can't believe that, you know, this was four foot deep in water or three foot deep, whatever. So, yeah, it's pretty good. What did that look like when you had... It was just inundated? We're in tin tinnies everywhere, and then by 9 o'clock tomorrow morning, what you're walking on is now foot deep in water. Yeah, and it's... So last year we had two floods, so... Yeah, so it's, it's just everything changes so quick. You can get stuck, and we did get stuck. Well, not us, but stock gets stuck. But you know when it's finished, it's going to be good. And it's not bad at the time. Because, you know, it's, we're, it's, it's, not a, it's not a flood. You know, it's not a surprise event. We know it's coming. What do you think Justin and Julie are doing that has made them be able to have such a successful crop this year? They're willing to take a gamble, which is brave, I think. Surround themselves by resources, and they'll evolve with what, what you know, they see. There's a, there's a fair bit of old school knowledge there from his father and family and stuff. Oh, I think myself makes it easier. Um, but, and yeah, they're not, they're not scared of seeking input advice, whatever. And that's, I think, yeah, which is a good thing. And that's what makes it work. How does it feel to be a part of something that is somewhat rare for, for this sort of country? Oh, you get some good stories. Yeah, there's a lot of questions asked at you and people go, oh, it's a good country up there and a lot of people want to be part of it and want to come and have a look at a sticky beacon. But it's, it has its challenges, but it's pretty exciting. It is a good fun, hard work, long hours. but Yeah, and a good group of people, good kit, a good group. You've got plenty of respectful people that'll um, respect your knowledge and vice versa, you know. And this, you know, nowadays is, you may not know what to do, but you'll find someone or and they're quite happy to talk to you about it because I know where you're at your isolation means you you've got to think out in the square and that, a, a lot a lot you know surround yourself by smart people 
Tom Lansom there from the Barossa Valley ending that story from Lily McCure with some additional reporting from Bill Ormond. And for more on that story and see some stunning pictures from out that way and of the harvest by Bill, go to abc.net.au forward slash rule and you can have a read of it right now. It is nine minutes to one. You are with Selena Green on the South Australian Country Hour on this Thursday afternoon. Well, she is a key player in viticulture and biodiversity. She's now been recognised for her achievements. Mary Ritalak has been inducted as one of 20 outstanding nominees on the South Australian Women's Honour Roll. As well as contributing to the wine industry for the past three decades, she's helped 75 wine grape growers across eight regions improve their environmental stewardship practices through her Eco Vineyards program. And she told Eliza Berlage that growing up on a fruit block in the Riverland gave her the confidence to p- pursue a career in agriculture. Yeah, I grew up in a, a fruit block uh, in Renmark West and I loved that childhood. It was lots, you know, full of lots of freedom, but also responsibility and um, you know, just gave me lots of really practical um, confidence on you know, how to you know, take those next steps. I actually didn't realise that I could forge a career in the wine industry. I went off to study ecology and be a park ranger and then fell back into the wine uh, community soon after. And yeah, I've worked professionally uh, as a viticulturalist over the last 30 years. So it was a fantastic grounding at that time and really enjoyed my childhood experiences growing up on a fruit block. We grew wine grapes, dried grapes and table grapes, um, pears, uh, apricots. So yeah, there was... Uh, um, lots of fruit on hand to consume and lots of great experiences. So when and how did you realise you could marry these passions of ecology and agriculture into your work? Did you have any particular mentors or were there any particular aha moments along the way? For me, it was really intuitive. The first vineyard that I managed, I established native insectary plants. So they're native plants which are locally adapted to the particular area, but they also provide this fantastic function. They provide nectar and pollen, which attracts a whole lot of uh, predatory arthropods, so they're insects and spiders. And they can then provide biocontrol um, of insect pests in the vineyard. So um, I did that. This is nearly 20 years ago. And the vineyard changed hands after three years. And the new owners sprayed all of my plants out. And I was so kind of shocked and also a little bit grumpy that I went off and did a PhD and was able to put, you know, that hard science behind a lot of that training that I'd had previously. And it uh, makes complete sense to establish this supplementary flora. They provide lots of ecosystem services. And not only are they really functional, but they these plants look fantastic. So it's a great way for us to stand out in a crowded international marketplace and really showcase our unique Australian flora as well. And I understand you have uh, been touring wine regions across uh, South Australia and Australia to providing information about the Eco Vineyards program. What are some of the sort of main questions you get from growers and what are some of the main uh, nuggets of advice that you're providing to people that want to be part of the program and, and change their practices? Yeah, it's been amazing just to see that growth in such a short period of time. And our focus areas are around soil health, ground cover, so that includes cover crops, but we're really focusing kind of on species that are more perennial in nature and also functional biodiversity. So that's all the fauna found in association. So it might be, I think I've mentioned insects and spiders, it might be lizards, microbats, insectivorous and raptor birds. So within that scope of topics, there's so much we can talk about. And for instance, recently we've just put together some materials in our Eco Vineyards Knowledge Hub around soil health indicators for Australian vineyards. So we've had growers doing 
the Great Aussie Eco Vineyards Earthworm Count and digging for worms. And we talk to growers about some simple tests that they can do to look at the water infiltration rate of their soils and any resistance that they might have. So that comes back to some underlying knowledge around how we can get really productive systems. All the way through to talking about native insectary plants and I've put together a whole lot of plant guides so growers can find out uh, pre-European plant humidity they had before we modified the landscape and know what plants to put in the vineyard and surrounds and where. Right through the microbats that can eat up to half their body weight in insects every night and they're voracious feeders of moss so that's fantastic from our perspective because they like eating potentially the light brown apple moss which is a key insect pest in our vineyard. So there's a really broad and range of topics that we cover and growers, they're observing more in their vineyards. They're getting greater satisfaction about perhaps a job they've done for many years and they're seeing it in a completely different way. So we're seeing this real vigour and excitement from growers and uh, each time they have a curly question, I go away and try and find an answer and we're writing up a whole range of fact sheets and best practice management guides which will be released in the new year which will capture a lot of those questions and provide those answers. And I understand you were meant to come to the Riverland on your recent um, information tours, but that kind of had to be postponed. You know, is that hard to see a region where you grew up sort of really, you know, struggling? Absolutely. And, um, you know, I'm very uh, mindful that the growers are having a very difficult time at the moment. We're really keen to work uh, in the Riverland going forward and we're actually um, hoping to work with a local grower to set up a whole range of a demonstration sites showcasing a whole range of different ground covers. So that's just in the works at the moment. Um, but one of the things that we also talk about are alternative cash crops and ways to be able to draw an income from you know the vineyard property if it's been put on hold for a period of time and just work with native grasses and also potentially botanicals for gin production. There's a whole range of ideas that we have which would potentially be applicable just to help ease that burden until growers are able to find a home for those grapes. So yeah, there's lots of opportunity to build resilience into those systems, do work on the soil health while the, the vines are potentially not in production, but also look at alternative um, sources of income. So yeah, really keen to continue those conversations in the region. That's Eco Vineyards Program Manager Mary Rietelak there speaking with Eliza Berlage. And, yeah, Mary has uh, just been inducted as one of 20 outstanding nominees on the South Australian Women's Honour Roll. Congratulations to her and all of the uh, the new inductees. And if you are in the Adelaide Hills, you can attend an Eco Vineyards workshop on ground covers at Vintelopa from 9am until 3pm. Uh, coming up on your radio this afternoon, Jason Chonk bringing you afternoons again. Hello, Jason. Hello, Selena. How are you doing? I'm all right on this Thursday. Oh, lovely. Hey, have you started any of your Christmas traditions yet? Uh, yes. Well, we always watch the local parade. We go home, mm-hmm. just decorate Christmas like it's just exploded, and then my kids take turns each year to be the one to put the star on the top of the tree. Oh, that's lovely. So we've done Excellent. that. Nice, because um, I've got a, a newborn and we had a thought today that, oh, we, we should probably pick a tradition to do and, mm-hmm. and stuff. So uh, we're going to talk about Christmas traditions today. Uh, also, teachers on screen, um, apparently the way that they're portrayed on screen is not always flattering. Um, and apparently it could be one of the reasons why we're finding it hard to attract more teachers. Ah, well, when you think about it, they get a bit of a, a dodgy deal with portrayals in screens and movies. Yeah, generally. they're either boring or they're incompetent or, or they're great, but because they don't play by the rules. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So if, 
if you've got a teacher that ever told you to stand on a desk and read poetry Captain, my captain. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So have a great show. Sounds like that's a good one coming up. Jason Chung will be on your radio this afternoon uh, with those stories and much, much more. Thanks so much for your company today. Uh, don't forget that you can listen back to any of the country hour that you may have missed on the ABC Listen app. It's a free app. You can download it onto your smartphone and tablet right now. Uh, look for South Australian Country Hour. Lots of great ABC audio content on the app while you're at it. Or go to our website, abc.net.au forward slash rural. I've been Selena Green and the time is now one o'clock. Stay connected with your ABC. Find news online at abc.net.au. Select your postcode to see local stories, news and weather. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.